with judgment. The Assyrian Empire destroyed. And again, the figure of a fresh cut down tree. The axe of divine judgment fell. And yet the Davidic dynasty was not destroyed completely. There would be a remnant. There would be a redemption. And the darkness would turn to light. Out of this stump will be left a shoot. Insignificant. Small. Weak. Even the appearance of death. And yet from this apparent dead stump would come life, would come royalty, would come reign, the reign of God through a son of David and restoration. In fact, the whole world will come to experience a true theocracy. One who would reign, who would come to reign. That one would embody all of the ideals of the Davidic kingdom. Again, E.J. Young writes, What possible contrast, however, could there be between the mighty Assyrian forest and the lowly stump of Jesse? Just this. Assyria would perish come to a complete end. But in the rootstock of Jesse, there was yet life. David's dynasty then is not completely exterminated. Its roots are in the ground and a stump remains. Who is or what is this root? Or not the root so much, but the shoot. Well, it is the son of Jesse, David's greater son. It's interesting that what are called targums, uh, Jewish targums, um, which were translations from the Hebrew into Aramaic, and they were kind of like a, a study Bible in the sense that there would be annotations and notes, kind of like today's modern study Bibles. And because shortly hereafter, Hebrew was almost a dead language and the Jews spoke Aramaic, which is a Northwest Semitic dialect, probably more than you need to know. But in any event, the Jewish Targums apply this text to the Messiah, not to Israel as some more modern commentators would suggest, but to the Messiah himself. Lupul, the Old Testament scholar of a previous generation, in his exposition of Isaiah wrote, the stump God will enable to bring forth a live shoot which will develop into a tree actually bearing fruit. This tree of lowly beginnings is the Christ of God. In other words, that which is imposing collapses the reign of Assyria. And that which is insignificant 
is capable of producing the greatest possible results. Or again, loophole, the Messiah again appears as the great agent of this salvation. And so here is a text that is marked by great Christology, significance, with regard to the person and the work of Jesus Christ and the fruit that would come forth from His appearance. There would be a restoration from destruction, a restoration from devastation to peaceable kingdom, to a peaceable kingdom by the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Himself. The Davidic line has not been destroyed. The Davidic line was never destroyed. Or as another writer has said, the root and stump of the tree that once stood so proud will remain. Out of the stump will grow a tiny shoot from which will develop a branch, a sturdy and healthy branch which will bear fruit. But what then does the text um, tell us? Well, a number of of things. Five of them to be exact. First of all, notice the Messiah, uh, to which this text points. The Messiah and his entitlement. His ancestry. Notice the source He is the son of Jesse, or from the stock of Jesse. He would come from Jesse, who was David's father. And so in that sense, the Messiah is Davidic. He's the the son of David, and he's actually called that in uh, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, that is that he emerges out of David. Now, why does the text say that? And this is, I suppose, somewhat speculative, but why does it not say, and there shall come forth a shoot out of the stock of David, but rather it says out of the stock of Jesse? Well, two things possibly emerge from the text. One is the lowliness, the insignificance of this one who emerges. He's the son of Jesse. And who's Jesse? Hardly anyone of significance. Here's mighty Assyria and the kings of Assyria. But here is this king that emerges. And who is he? Well, in in a sense, he's nobody. And of course, in another sense... He's far more than one could hope. But it might also draw attention to the uniqueness of David. Jesse had many sons. David wasn't the only one. But David is the only one that was ever called the son of Jesse. 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse 16. 
And so what emerges here is something not only of the lowliness of his background, but of the, of the uniqueness of his background. He's the son of Jesse in a sense and in a way that every other son was not. Or as one writer has said, the golden king of the past foreshadows the true gold to come. Not only do we notice here the source as we think of his entitlement, but again also the smallness. A twig, as Matthew Henry says, a rod, a branch, a twig. Something almost insignificant, even as it was on the the redwood that I mentioned. Just something an inch or two high in my case. So he emerges out of something that is truly insignificant. And that's helpful. In fact, it's powerful. Because it draws attention to the surprise. I mean, here's this stump. And there's this little green shoot. Smallness. Insignificance. Pointing to the Messiah's humiliation. And everyone thought he was dead, and as a matter of fact, he was dead. And he lay in the ground for three days. All signs of life had disappeared in the cutting off of, of this tree. And yet there was a secret vitality that remained. Something shall emerge. And something shall bear fruit. Here is God at work. He shall reign. It shall bear fruit. The stump, the root, and the branch shall bear fruit. And so here is entitlement. Secondly, notice the Messiah and his equipment in verse 2. In every way he is qualified for the great work to which he is called. He has been endowed with enormous gifts for the purpose. The one who sits on David's throne is, is rich in endowments just Not one or two or a few, but rich in endowments. He has everything necessary to fulfill his messianic calling. In fact, notice, and you may have missed it, the text is extremely Trinitarian. We sometimes think of the Trinity announced or promoted or revealed just in those those few texts, actually many texts, which bring together Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The the benediction, for example. Great commission and other passages. But there are a great many Old Testament texts as well that allude to the Trinity. And this is one of them. It speaks of the Lord, Jehovah. It speaks of the Spirit and the Son of Jesse. And so again, Father, Spirit, and the Son. Now how does that work itself out 
in verse 2. And the spirit of Jehovah shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Jehovah. Notice several things. First of all, notice his professional integrity. The spirit shall rest upon him. And of course, this draws attention to the baptism of our Lord as the Spirit of God descends upon him and the Father speaks from heaven. Again, Trinitarian. But the point there is not that he never had the Spirit before, that somehow the Trinity didn't exist, but rather the Spirit descends upon him for his messianic duty and messianic responsibility. And that's what's in view here. The Spirit shall rest upon him. The Spirit of the Lord, who is the Spirit of these characteristics and qualities. The Spirit who produces or who gives wisdom and so forth. These gifts appear in, um, in three pairs, actually. Some have suggested it's a seven-fold description, but it's probably better to understand it in terms of three pairs. First of all, his technical ability, his intellectual ability, his knowledge, the Spirit shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. He's able to make fine distinctions. He has the ability to make right judgments. He perceives things as they really are. Realize how rare that is? It's really a rarity. It's not common. There are those who you think might be, might have wisdom and they make the most foolish decisions on the planet. But here is one who is wise, who possesses the ability to make right judgments. He has the ability to discern. He sees the heart of the matter. It draws attention to his perception, and it draws attention to his precision. His professional integrity, his technical ability... And his practical strategy, he truly is qualified. Not only wisdom and understanding, but the spirit of counsel and might. He devises the right course of action, and he has the power to carry out what he determines to do. Again, something that is exceedingly rare. You and I might determine to do something, but not have the power to carry it out. But here is one who determines and who possesses dominance. Draws attention also to his spiritual sensitivity. He is one who fears the Lord. Possessing reverence, submission. Here is plentiful supply. There is no one else who has ever lived, who will ever live, who has this combination. This 
cluster of of qualities, this, this equipment to do what he has been charged with doing. Here is plentiful supply, or as Calvin wrote, here is one who does not come empty-handed. He does not come empty-handed. Or as E.J. Young wrote, it is the ability to render right decisions at the right time so that one may act in accordance with the right. That is righteousness. Thirdly, notice the Messiah and His enablement in verses 3 through 5. And his delight shall be in the fear of Jehovah. Notice again the repetition of the fear of the Lord or the fear of Jehovah. And his delight shall be in the fear of Jehovah and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither decide after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked." And righteousness shall be the girdle of his waist, and faithfulness the girdle of his loins. Here is enablement. Beginning with his delight. His delight shall be in the fear of Jehovah. Literally, it is his smell. His smell, he smells with delight, like that turkey that comes out of the oven and you smell it and you smell it with delight or some other meat or some other tasty dish. And for him it is the fear of the Lord. It's not a turkey or a ham or roast beef or something else, but it's the fear of the Lord. His delight is in true devotion to the Lord. One commentator said the Messiah will smell with delight the attitude of reverent concern for God's ways just as God delights in the smell of incense. And so that works itself out. In the decisions that he makes and in the determination, his sensitivity, his judgment, his perception. He's marked by equity, by justice. Or as E.J. Young says, here is no taking of bribes, but a just administration of the law in which truth and honor are upheld. Here is sensitivity to justice. Here is balance or equity. Here's mercy. Here's reverence for God's honor and a desire and a wish for man's happiness. He's the poor man's king. Matthew Henry writes. And his judgment is always fair unlike our worlds. He's neither too lenient nor too harsh, neither sentimental 
nor severe, neither indulgent nor intolerable. But he shall judge justly and shall judge, therefore, the wicked with the rod and will slay the wicked. There you have it. Righteousness and faithfulness as this little section ends. Righteousness and faithfulness. Unlike other kings, too sentimental, letting evil be viewed as good, too harsh, cruel. Here is one who is not limited by, uh, uh, like other kings, but acts righteously and acts faithfully. Someone has written step by step as it were, the veil is being removed from the figure of this king and we are learning that not only in his human nature is he miraculously equipped, but that he is also himself a divine person. So here is enablement, perception, determination, decision. Now, notice fourthly, the Messiah and his establishment. The environment that exists as a result of his righteous and faithful and just acting. We notice that in verses 6 through 9, this very familiar text, I suppose. We've heard it um, read or um, explained perhaps in different contexts. And the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them, and the cow and and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt, nor... um, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Jehovah as the waters cover the sea. Notice the marks of this kingdom, the environment, what is established. Now, this has been understood literally at different periods of time in church history, uh, that this will actually take place in in the millennium. There's a number of problems with that, not the least of which is lions don't eat straw and they were constructed to eat straw. So how does that sort itself out? There are those who have just sort of dismissed it and understand it kind of spiritually. But I think it can be understood figuratively that this is describing a new era, using language that would be familiar to the people at that time. And what it draws attention to, think about it for a moment, is transformation. Nature is is altered. Nature is changed. 
It points to reconciliation. It points to communion, to interaction, and to dominion. In fact, similar language is used in Romans 15 and verse 12, and also in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 16. As one writer has said, this interpretation suggests that attempts to arrive at a just world peace based on mutual self-interest must finally fail. Only mutual commitment to the Holy One who is righteous and faithful can produce an environment where human beings can commit themselves to one another in trust. And I think the text tells us these verses 6 through 9 at least two things. First of all, when Messiah comes, when Jesus comes, when the Son of David comes and enacts this kingdom, there will be a reversal of nature. And so you have these various animals that normally are at each other's throats or running from one another, are now communing together. And isn't that what the gospel does? It doesn't the gospel through Jesus Christ end enmity, bring to an end hostility. The lion and the lamb lying down together, people who would ordinarily not be drawn together, not have anything in common, not even be able to communicate with one another. And so here are all of these differences. Those who had been enemies were now living in peace. And here is an adjustment that is marked by safety, security. Secondly, not only is there a reversal of nature, but there's the production of a new order. A child shall lead them. A child is least able to control the voracious appetites of these various animals. In a sense, there's the image here is a kind of return to Eden, to the Garden of Eden, and uh, the safety and the security of that environment. Furthermore, there's a reference here to David, who was, as a boy, was a shepherd. And of course, in that environment, sought to protect his sheep from the lion and the bear and the wolf, and so forth. But here is the reversal of nature. Here is the production of a new order. Here is a context that is marked by security. An infant holds its hand over the snake's den, cutting out the warmth or shutting off 
the light, putting himself at great risk, but he shall not be harmed. This context is marked by security. Messiah creates an environment. Messiah creates His church, which is to be marked by enemies laying down their swords. Those who are marked by difference. Their nature has been changed. Their their nature has been reversed. There is this new order. An order of peace. And so those who were enemies culturally, socially, genealogically, or politically are now marked by living together. And living together in perpetuity. Extending to the young. The rule of the king produces something altogether new. It's never before. It's never existed. And even death itself will be conquered as the child plays near the den of the snake. Now fifthly and finally, Notice the Messiah and his empowerment. And what we discover in these verses is the work of this son of Jesse, this descendant of David, that when that day arrives, notice the language of verse 10, in that day, a day of divine appointment, a day that shall arrive, a day that has been promised. A day set by the Lord, marked by certainty. That there will be as a result of His coming and of His work. As we've already said, the setting up of a new order which will have worldwide implications. And that's a glorious thought and it's how the chapter ends, verses 10 through 16. And we don't have time to look at at every reference and every um, illustration that is used here. But notice that, that Isaiah says that in that day, we move from a root which cannot be seen to a little shoot, to an ensign or an ensign, a flag. You go from that which is hidden to that which is on display. And in the context, on display for the whole world to see and for many throughout the world to experience. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ was like the setting up of a standard, the setting up of a sign, the raising of the flag. And isn't that image used in other places? Of course it is. In John chapter 3 and verse 14, 
Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so will the Son of Man be lifted up. Lifted up. The serpent in the wilderness for everybody to see. And so will be the experience of Jesus. John chapter 12 and verse 32. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. All kinds of people from all kinds of places. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9. That the Lord Jesus Christ had been highly exalted. And He was given a name above every other name. And in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, that we have such a high priest, holy, harmless, undefiled, and so forth, was made higher than the heavens. Christ, Romans 15, 12, is the root of Jesse. And now God will come a second time, having delivered Egypt, or excuse me, having delivered Israel from Egypt, and now has raised a flag for the world to see and for the world to embrace. And in such a way that sinners will seek Him. Here is the supremacy, the glory of Christ's coming. Again, that overcomes all natural barriers and obstacles. Uh, The text draws attention to that again here. And the remnant will come from the four corners of the earth. Here is God intervening. Here is the success of the gospel. In which men, women, and boys and girls lay aside all of their differences and become, and here is the, truly the one nation under God, not America, but the church. Here is the place where God says, This is my rest, verse 10. Here is the sufficiency of God's grace. A highway shall be built up. Here is the imagery of life under this son of Jesse. Or as someone has said, the root is no longer under the ground and invisible, but standing to such a height that it can serve as a point about which the peoples will meet and rally. Well, What does the text tell us besides the obvious terms of what the images mean? Well, several things. First of all, notice this, that God has a plan and He works His plan. You and I have plans and we attempt to work our plans, but all too often, sadly, those plans fail, but that's not the case with God. Furthermore, often... The plan is a puzzle to us. Why does the gospel flourish at one time and not at another? In one place and not 
at another. And here we have a text which speaks of gospel prosperity, of the reign of Jesus Christ, of the sovereignty of God in the context of the gospel. I don't have answers for all of that except to say that Christ is at the very center of his plan and in a sense nothing else really matters than the outworking of God's gracious gospel plan through the root of Jesse. And secondly, related to that, we need to note this from the text, and that is that the kingdoms of this world inevitably fall. Syria fell, Babylon fell. Nation after nation after nation after nation has fallen, but the kingdom of God shall surely rise. David's dynasty may be reduced as it was here, but it will rise and it will rise again. It will go forth, it will advance. On the throne there will be a son of Jesse, a son of David, one who in himself shall embody all of the ideals of the real Davidic kingdom. It is King Jesus. It is King Jesus. Here is the rallying point of all of the saints of every age, of every time, of every place. But the blessings described come only from David's descendant. Again, even a Jewish Targum applies it to the Messiah. Here is one who is distinguished from all earthly and temporal rulers who may have this gift or that gift or this ability or that ability, but none of them all together, even as the son of Jesse does. Here is the sign that unites us. Here's the flag that unites us. Here's the banner that unites humanity. A unity in the truth of God with regard to this descendant of Jesse. And it is only in Christ then, or it is in Christ alone, that we truly can be one. So here's promise. Here is promise that that God takes the initiative. God takes the offensive. His enemies shall be destroyed. Here is a complete reversal of present circumstances. A reversal of nature. An ordering of nature. A king and his kingdom. And herein lies our hope. Herein lies our only real hope. Facing a new year. We've begun a new year. What are the prospects? I have no idea. 
I'm not a prophet and you wouldn't want me to be one. We don't know what the future holds, but we do know that there is one, to borrow terminology, who holds the future. There is one who knows what he's doing. There is one. And at the end of the day, it has to do with King Jesus and the extension of his realm and his kingdom. And so we ought to pray to that end and labor to that end and long for that end. Here is a passage that reminds us that though the tree had been cut down, a shoot shall appear, become a branch, and bear fruit that has implications for the entire world in every age subsequent subsequent to the appearance of this shoot and this branch. And so we live in that time frame and in that time period in which we may see and observe and experience the reign of King Jesus.